Planetary Radio is Public Radio's only weekly series about space exploration. I'm Matt Kaplan, and I hope you'll join me as we explore Mars, look for life in the universe, and fly through the rings of Saturn. We'll talk with the men and women, scientists and dreamers who are guiding us to a future beyond Earth. And don't forget to enter our weekly space trivia contest. That's Planetary Radio, Mondays at 5.30 p.m., right here on KUCI. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm this show's engineer. And Mari is your host. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County, California. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, and lots of other shows. To learn more about this radio show and our great guest, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. You know, we love the Internet, and it's also a fearful place to be. You know, it's it's got the dangers and and all of the lurking things out there, but at the same time, it is a wonderful tool. And luckily, when I joined the American Bar Association's uh, technology committee, since I wanted to learn more about what's going on in the legal profession with technology, and who is the chair or the co-chair is this wonderful man, Randy Sabat, who has agreed to join us all the way from Washington, D.C. tonight. He is brilliant. He's an information security and internet expert as well as a privacy expert. Let me tell you a little bit about him. Randy is also a CISSP, and he will explain exactly what that is, and a partner in the Washington, D.C. law firm of Sun and Shine Nath and Rosenthal LLP. He is a member of the Information Security and Internet Enforcement and Intellectual Property and Technology Practice Groups. He counsels clients on information security, privacy, IT, licensing, and patents, all sorts of things dealing with issues such as public key infrastructure, digital and electronic signatures, federated identity, HIPAA issues, Gramm-Leach-Bliley issues, Sarbanes-Oxley issues, state and federal information security laws, identity theft, and security breaches. And he's helped companies develop strategies to protect their intellectual property, including preparing and prosecuting patents related to cryptography, authentication, security, certification, and accreditation, and related areas of technology. He is a real techie. And prior to joining Sun and Shine, Mr. Sabat was a special counsel at Cooley Goodard Cronish LLP, where he founded the Information Security and Cybercrime Practice Group. And he, there's just so much I could tell you, I mean, on and on, but I want to tell you, he knows what he's doing. He has several years of engineering experience in the information security marketplace, including as a crypto engineer with the National Security Agency. And he's worked in active noise cancellation, which will explain what that is. And he holds two U.S. patents. He's a prolific writer, and he also is a prolific speaker, and we are so glad that he's joined us. So please let us know you're there, Randy. You there? I am here. Thank you, Mari. Oh, well, we're, we're so excited to have you, and it was fun to meet you over the internet, and that's one of the real beauties of the internet, that ter- terrific connection with wonderful people. So thank you for joining us. You're welcome. So tell us, how did you become a techie, and, and what is your designation as a CISSP? Well, I actually kind of kid people. I say I I started out on one dark side working for the NSA and then went to a darker side and became a lawyer years later. Um, (laughs) But it's it's actually been an interesting trek because I I did start out on the technology side. My my undergraduate degree is in computer engineering. And uh, when I was at the agency, 
um, I was actually on the defensive side of the house, so I was working on basically modules that that were designed to protect our communications, you know, preventing others from breaking them and working on the, the crypto related to that. Um, so it's it's been interesting in the sense that back when I was at the agency, it was, you know, prior to the real uh, w- worldwide acceptance of the Internet and growth of the web. And so information security was something that, you know, those people up at Fort Meade worried about and, and really not too many other people were that concerned about it, except maybe in the financial services industry. Now you can't pick up a, a trade rag these days or even a you know major newspaper without seeing something related to either identity theft or a, a security breach or something. Um, so it's been very interesting. So Randy, right you, out of college, you started with NSA? I, I did. Um, wow. I, uh, they come. They came and got you, huh? <laughs> yeah, in a way. Actually, I, I was very fascinated. I, I read a book um, that uh, was written about NSA. I, I guess it would be called an unauthorized biography, if you will, um, by a by a gentleman named James Bamford. But it it got me fascinated with the whole concept of you know protecting information, that sort of thing. So I basically did the interview, and the, the rest, they say, is history. Uh, to your other question, CISSP is actually a, um, a designation. Um, it, it stands for Certified Information System Security Professional, and it's, uh, it's basically given out to folks who uh, are, are able to do a couple different things. First of all, they, it's for folks who work in this space and uh, basically pass a test that I call the, the bar exam for for information security professionals, because it's a um, it's a, a, a grueling exam, and uh, it it leads to the designation, which um, in effect covers a number of ten what they call the uh, common body of knowledge, ten different areas related to information security. Wow, that's similar to what I took with the CIPP, which is the Certified Information Privacy Professional. So we had a, it felt like taking another bar exam when I had to take that, but. Um, it did have some security information that you had to know, but n- I'm sure nothing compared to what you have to know. It's it's an incredibly fast-paced field that's ever-changing, isn't it? Most definitely. And, you know, I really see the two, uh, you know, the, the whole privacy security um, sort of interplay. Uh, they really complement each other, both in terms of CIPP versus CISSP. You know, CIPP is more privacy-focused. CISSP is a little bit more information security-focused. But those two things are really, the relationship between the two is really two sides of the same coin, I would say, in the sense that there's sort of a, a natural tension, if you will, between, you know, privacy on the one hand and security on the other hand. If you want, you know, from, a, from, a, from the perspective of society, if you want some level of privacy, you have to, you know, balance that against the security needs. If you want security, you're going to have to give up perhaps a little bit of your privacy. Um, so I think it, you know, it really sets the stage for the, the policy issues that we've seen in the past. If you think back to the things related to, uh, I was just showing a colleague earlier today a, a book from the, the 90s called Building in Big Brother when there was, you know, a lot of focus on, what the government was doing in in this space related to communications and their ability to get at the communications. It was the crypto battle, you know, that they right. talked about. And now fast forward 10 or so years, 15 years, and we're, we're in a world that's much different from a both a policy and a societal perspective. And you, you factor in 9-11 and a bunch of other stuff, and you really see that tension come to light. You know, it's interesting that um, there... There is some, like you said, there's a tension and there's a lack sometimes of understanding on behalf of the um, IT people of the importance of the privacy issues. They look entirely at the security issues and in a lot of corporations in the past, they spent more time on their intellectual property protection rather than their databases, right? Right. Agreed. Yep. And now they're finding with our new privacy laws and our security breach legislation that suddenly uh, the databases have to be considered like intellectual property or at least at the same level of protection. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, it's it's a situation where <clears throat> you know I, I think you raise a really good point. The the whole area of personal information was never necessarily viewed as um, a. I, I shouldn't say never. There was some amount of lax uh, practices or attitudes towards it, um, and I would, you know, given given the laws that are are starting to come out, I I almost see it as uh, from an intellectual. You know, if you put this in intellectual property terms, you kind of have to view that information as a trade secret, and you're going to want to protect it in the same way that you would protect your other trade secrets. Right. In other words, you you don't leave it unprotected and you're very careful about what you do with it, who you give it to, etc. And who has access to it within Precisely. the corporation. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I don't think that's been looked at and I think there's been corporations seem to have spent a great deal of money on security and much less money on on privacy. We're starting to see an increase in uh, privacy offices and a chief privacy officer um, but that office really doesn't get the same kind of attention as the security office. <laughs> and um, it, it's interesting. Let me step back a little bit because I wanted you to explain some terms for my audience in case they are driving by and they don't know what it is. I think it would be real helpful to understand. what. To explain what you mean by public key infrastructure, the PKI. Um, PKI is a... Uh, a technology that was developed um, dating, you know, depending on who you talk to, uh, governments, uh, both our government and other governments were dabbling in this back as, as, as early as the late 50s and early 60s. Um, there were some patents that came out in the early 70s, and it led to um, the, the, the two sort of well-known algorithms are RSA, uh, Rivas Shamir Edelman, um, which are the 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 entities behind the the company RSA um, that that was recently uh, acquired, and uh, Diffie Hellman, and basically public key infrastructure is taking mathematical concepts that lead to a situation where um, instead of the quote-unquote, old days where everyone within the same network would have to have the same key in order to communicate with each other, what were known as the symmetric key algorithms, um, the, the danger obviously being if there's a bad person or a careless person that gives up their key, that compromises the whole network. Right. Um, with public key technology, it protects, depending on how it's rolled out, but it, at least in theory, it protects at an individual level, so each person would have essentially two keys instead of one key, you and I would each have a key pair, you know, the, the two keys. My private it. key and your public, and, and the public key, and your private key and the public key. Is that exactly. what you mean? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so that by, just by its terminology, the public key is the piece that you put out there publicly, and even though you've shared it, because of the mathematical relationship between the two keys, people can't break the technology. Although, having said that, <laughs> there are a number of you know, very, very smart people, including probably some people out there uh, at your university, where uh, they are coming up with ways to attack the technology. In fact, there was a movie a few years ago um, with Robert Redford called Sneakers that I, I would highly recommend to anyone interested in this from a, from a, a uh, fictional perspective. But it, uh, actually, Dr. Edelman was the uh, technical uh, consultant on the movie, and it, it takes a theoretical look at what happens if public key technology is broken. But that's what PKI is. In a, right, you know. and we're talking about encryption now. We're talking about being able to decrypt. Isn't that what we're talking about? You're actually, um, public key, key technology is interesting in the sense that it offers two different things. One is confidentiality, which right. is the encryption piece. So right. I can take your public key, encrypt something, send it to you. Only you can decrypt it because you right. are the only one with the private key. But it also offers authentication and... and that I'm really who I say I am. Exactly. Okay. You do it a different way using what are called digital signatures. You use right. the opposite uh, way. Right. That was going to be my next question. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <Is> to <laughs> explain the d digital signatures, that the di right. digital signatures then authenticate who I am. Correct. Right? 
right. they they give a recipient a way of verifying who you are because you take your private key and apply a digital signature I can then take the public key that again is available to anyone and this again need to be very clear here when you digitally sign something it doesn't protect it from a confidentiality perspective it doesn't encrypt it right but by take when I take your public key and verify that signature I can then verify the authenticity and the the integrity of the data and there's also a, a notion of what's called non-repudiation. You can't later on deny having signed whatever you signed. Right. And what about what about identity fraud with this? What, what do you think? I mean, aren't there fraudsters who can, you know, get my digital signature? Well, the, w- the way the math works, you're, uh, each communication that you sign is going to have, it's, it's, literally, I shouldn't say literally, it it is very analogous to your handwritten signature in the sense that each one is going to be, it's not like a digitized signature. Each one of the digital signatures that you apply is going to be different from every other one because it's unique to the message. So the only way, at least in theory, the only way that a fraudster would be able to do something bad is if they can somehow masquerade as you, right, and what that would mean from is they the would inception, have, from the inception, from the inception, from, yes, from uh-huh. the from the issuance of the key pair, they would have to go to what's known as the certification authority or CA, and say, "Hi, my name is Mari. Give right. me a digital certificate and let me use it." And if the CA doesn't have in place good enough controls over that initial authentication of that person, you know, the checking of that identity, right then somebody couldn't, you know, could perhaps masquerade as you, but it given the controls that are in place with most major CAs that that's difficult if not impossible. What kind of controls are in place? Well, depending on the kind of certificate that is being issued, um, you know, you there are certificates where it would be fairly easy to um, to masquerade as someone else because all you need is an email address, but there are also more um, more secure types of credentials that are available where they do a a fairly uh, thorough vetting of who you are or who your organization is, depending on how the certificate is being issued. And it it leads to a situation where any person that is communicating with you is going to have a pretty high level of assurance that you are who you say you are, because not only are you asserting that you are who you say you are, but also there is a CA out there who is vouching, essentially, it's it's a, you know, I'm, I'm sort of uh, glossing over a lot of details here, but that certification authority is vouching for who you say you are because they've signed your certificate. So the CA is going to have actually a lot of power. And and I'm just thinking it's almost like when you uh, someone applies for a credit card in your name, they're supposed to verify who you are. Correct. But the way that they do it is so inept that we have so many identity theft victims that someone believes that it's Randy Sabat and it's really Lloyd Boshaw who has applied for credit in your name and has gotten your social security number and has some other information about you and applies for credit across the country. And then suddenly you've got everyone relying on this first initial credit card that goes on your credit report and then the credit report has many other new accounts that are opened in the name of Randy Sabat by Lloyd Boshaw. <laughs> you see what I mean? I mean, it's really analogous that that could happen if you don't have the CA really doing its job and if it only relies on an email. Agreed. And, and uh, But I think it's that's looking at one side of it, but I think the other side of it is also the the recipients of whatever communications are coming in. In other words, if someone, uh, let's just put out a hypothetical, you know, two, actually two hypotheticals. First hypothetical is someone makes a $10 purchase on an auction site. Um, second hypothetical is someone buys $100,000 worth of stock. In the first case, maybe the, the, the purchaser would be okay with a certificate that was issued just based on an email address. Because 
okay, if the, if the transaction goes bad, I'm out $10. The second case, that person, that recipient, or, or you know, the, the, the receiver in the, in the transaction that is actually purchasing uh, the stock, that person hopefully is not going to rely on a certificate that is issued with, you know, a low, basically a, a low level of assurance. They're going to want to rely on a certificate only if it's been issued with that higher level of assurance. So I think this what we start to get so into for here every, is sort of an... So, yeah, let me just ask you something. So sure. you So others would not rely on that first CA, uh, CA's approval? Uh, that's the worry I have is that... Are you saying to me that each new um, transaction would require a CA to authenticate? Um, because, let me answer that two ways. Okay. Um, the is that a good way, question or is that a stupid question? I'm <laughs> no, it's uh, I, the, the question I think you're trying to ask is is more it's it gets to the issue of what does the CA have to do. There's really three parties we're talking about here. Obviously, there's the CA, there's the the entity that is that is applying for the certificate and is going to be use it using it, and then there's what's called the relying party. Right. And the relying the 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 subscriber, the the entity that is getting the certificate and is going to be able to apply these digital signatures, is is basically going to be be able to in most cases, again depending on how the certificate is issued reuse that certificate without, you know, essentially having to go back to the CA each time. The relying party or multiple relying parties, if there, you know, if there are multiple communications, each one can go back to the CA to verify that subscriber's identity or well, not identity, basically they they can verify that the communication that they've received came from that entity. But if the initial issuance and the initial um, identification and authentication was bad, then, as you say, yes, there, there, it would be possible for someone to masquerade as someone else or, putting it in privacy terms, to you know, potentially steal someone's identity. Right. So that's what I'm scared of. Is there, are there any standards that are required to authenticate before a digital signature is issued? There actually are. Um, uh, a great deal of work uh, was put into this area um, throughout the years, you know, going back over 10 years now. Um, there are a set of standards that are um, focused on this issue, and what has evolved in a number of different areas um, are, are what are known as certificate policies and certification practice statements that basically govern how this whole process works. And it, those are the those are the documents that then lead to the practices, which are used for vetting the identity in in each of these different scenarios. Um, so, the short answer is yes, the standards ex- exist. The important thing is for the entities that are issuing the certificates to follow those, you know, to follow what they have written in those in those practice statements. Right. We're speaking with Randy Sabat, who is a wonderful expert in technology and in privacy, and he's an attorney and a CISSP in Washington, D.C., and we're talking with him right now about digital signatures and trying to find out, really, is there a possibility of identity theft? And and this, you know, we're looking at things that can authenticate, you know, and we've had so much identity theft, you know, 15 million new victims last year, and it is a growing problem and we're trying to find ways that companies can authenticate who they're dealing with so that there will be less fraud. My concern when we're talking about their standards, there are no, um, we, and you were talking about the, there are the standards, but how do you make sure that somebody is adhering to those standards, right? That's, yes. That's the issue. And, and there are, I, I mean, the standard um, that exists, there is what's called an RFC that came out of, uh, what's known as the IETF, the in- Internet Engineering Task Force, um, there is an RFC which sort of s- sets the standard in terms of what has to be in these certificate policies and certification practice statements. Um, one of those areas is an audit. And what you will find, um, this is, uh, let me backtrack a little bit. This is sort of a, 
even though it's been around for a while, it's a nascent technology in the sense that it is just now starting to gain some amount of commercial acceptance all the way down to the consumer level. Right. Um, I have a sort of a, a theory that I call the three-wave theory in terms of technology adoption. So the government is sort of the first wave. They're the, they have the most valuable secrets to protect, and they're the first to uh, basically latch onto and implement new technologies, particularly in the security space. Then, most typically, you have uh, businesses and, at, you know, acceptance at the enterprise level, and then you have, finally, once, it, once the businesses have started to accept it, then you have the consumer level acceptance where it's, it's on an individual basis. I would assert that we're still in that second phase. We are not to the point which, you know, 10 years ago or so, people were talking about PKI as being the technology that will result in, you know, much less identity theft and much less fraud. And the, the idea was everybody is going to have their own digital certificate, which a lot of people liken to, you know, it's, it's the driver's license for the Internet or for the web. But what, what, you, what really got glossed over or almost skipped over was the, the, that second phase where you really need businesses to accept it first before it will really get out at the consumer level. We're starting to see that now. I have clients um, in a number of different industry sectors where they are using this technology to issue credentials to their employees, for example, issue credentials to their business partners so they can trust electronic communications to and from their um, suppliers, for example, or other business entities, you know, people they contract with. But they know them. Well, know? They, they know them um, it's, I would to think, an extent. Yeah, I mean, there is at least a way that you can verify besides just online and having one of these entities um, verify them, there there is an, a relationship already. Correct. So that is different because it's it's like the old mom. When you live in a small neighborhood, they can authenticate you. It's easy to authenticate you. And then what has gone on, at least with the huge epidemic of identity theft, is everything is online. There's consumers online. And you, you never really know the person. So you're just es- establishing... Um, a relationship with an identity who says that he is this person who has this social security number. And, you know, it's, I think it would be much harder to prove who you are with a digital signature um, if there was fraud against you. I mean, I think it would be extremely hard to prove who you are unless you had some, you know, biometric, uh, you know, uh, technology used at the same time. And even then somebody could, you know, in the inception say, I'm Mari Frank, and they use their finger. You know what I mean? Right. Well, I think you're. It's. I don't mean to be glib, but I. One of the. One of the other things that I do, I teach a, a course at at GW George Washington University called right. Information Policy, and one of the things that I always bring up in class, I, I actually teach in the the computer science department to computer science students. I teach them all about these these soft and fuzzy sort of policy issues, but one of the things that I I talk about, again, kind of glibly, as I say, information security is a great, from a career perspective, it's a great area to be in because you will always have bad people trying <laughs> to get around security. Exactly. And to your point, I, I you know, agree with you fully. There will always be a way, it may be a very minute way, but there will always be a way to circumvent security of some sort or another. Um, and in this area, you, you know, you can't avoid the situation where someone is able to provide enough information because they've gathered enough information about you to someone to potentially be issued a certificate in someone else's name. I think the important thing to recognize is the um, the use of this technology is intended to minimize that gap or, or minimize the likelihood of that occurring. Whereas in, I don't want to necessarily say today's, you know, uh, framework, but the, with the technology that's available today for communications, you don't have strong authentication. Um, as you point out, even if you 
integrate biometrics, you still have the potential for at you know time zero when someone is asserting that they are someone that 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 can pass through. So you will never, I would say, we will never be at a point where you can be 100% absolutely positively assured of someone's identity. What you can do is, I, I kind of view it as an a la carte menu. Let's say you're, you're about to get involved in a transaction and someone asserts a certificate that is of low assurance, if we're talking about PKI technology. Right, right. As you point out, in, in the old days, you relied on either a face-to-face relationship or a voice relationship. If you're not comfortable with whatever someone is presenting to you, do something else. Call them up. You know, I think it's dangerous to rely on a technology if you're not comfortable with, again, the level of assurance. Now, if this is a high assurance certificate where they have vetted your identity to government standards or to some other standard that, you know, the likelihood of someone being able to, to circumvent that is so low, then, then maybe it would be okay to accept that without anything else. So it's, to me, it's, it gets back to a, another thing that I bring up in class all the time. It's, it's an issue of balance. In the technology world, you know, when I was in, in engineering school, everything was binary, black and white. There was a zero or a one. And <laughs> right. with all of these issues, there's a lot of gray. And, and you need to, uh, again, the, the whole notion of a la carte is, okay, maybe if, if someone doesn't give you enough information in, in one area, you find out some other information about them, you know, to, to be more certain that they are who they say they you are. You mean from third parties? Possibly from third parties um, or from the person themselves. You know, right. the, that, that person, him or herself, uh, again, like I, know, I like now the way um, certain uh, banks and credit unions, et cetera, are starting to ask verifying questions other than just what's your name and password. You exactly. Know? And, and when they ask you questions that you have established, um, that they can ask you to verify who you are, at least they're going to, you know, several ways of authenticating who you are. And mm-hmm. I'm, as, as one who has helped literally hundreds and hundreds of victims of identity theft, it just kind of worries me that we don't have standards that, as we move forward in technology, standards that everybody can look to that they can rely on. And, for example, even with the fact FACTA, you know, the Fair and Accurate Credit Transaction Act, what we tried to get was some standards for verifying who someone is. For example, if the person who applies for credit applies at an address that's different from the address on the credit report, we wanted all creditors to either make the phone call and say, you know, did you apply for credit or send a postcard like the, you know, the postal inspector does and said, someone applied for credit. Was it you? You know, if it wasn't you, contact us immediately to verify that the address, you know, if the address is different. And we really haven't gotten a, a specific, you know, uh, standard for the all companies to use to verify who you are. And that's a concern as I listen to you from one who's experienced this is that you may have some great standards that the, the you know, the best practices, but if you don't have any legislation to force these companies to use it, there's going to be a lot of different companies opening up shop and saying, we will, you know, set up the digital signature for you. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Right. Am I right or am I off base? No, I think, you know, it goes back to what I was saying earlier. You will always have people trying to circumvent the system or, or you know, uh, do the bad things that that we're seeing. I, I think there there are multiple dynamics that play into this. Um, you know, from a from a business perspective, and and we saw this several years ago when um, it was uh, Represent- Representative Putnam who was proposing legislation that would have imposed um, some pretty pretty significant security standards on companies. Industry reacted uh, in a way that was very interesting. They basically said, 
look, legislation doesn't make sense for any number of reasons. Let us essentially self-govern. We're seeing that in certain areas um, where you, you now have, for example, the um, uh, PCI standard, which is not legislation, interestingly enough. We, we have, you know, obviously we have legislation on the reactive side related to um, data breach notification laws. You know, California was one of the first, was, it, was the first state the to first, pass one of those right. laws. We now have over 30 states and, and a couple of other local jurisdictions that have passed similar types of laws. Those have led to certain reactions and what, you know, what a lot of people are saying are good results in, in certain cases because now you have There's accountability, right, yeah. yeah. But um, you have a situation where if you, I think that there is, again, a certain balance that needs to be reached between what industry does and what, what happens from a legislative perspective because legislation can oftentimes um, lead to results that are unintended. As an example, specifically in the security space, if you set a bar for security standards, in other words, if you say, and I, I don't, I don't necessarily think this was, um, this would not necessarily be applicable in the FACTA situation that you described, but generally speaking, if you set a minimum standard for information security, um, the problem is that, you know, the attack vectors and the, the way that the, um, you know, the, the quote-unquote hackers, the bad people, what they're going to do is that all they have to do is just go slightly above that standard because most people, what they're going to do, most companies, what they will do is just meet that minimum standard. Um, so the difficulty, and it's, I think it's actually part of the reason why some of the legislation that we've seen is drafted the way that it's drafted. If you look at HIPAA, if you look at GLBA, um, and Sarbanes-Oxley, I think, is a, is a slightly different beast, so we won't talk about that in the same sort of vein. But if you look at HIPAA and GLB, they're very general in nature. They don't get to the level of detail, for example, that PCI gets to. And part of the reason is, I think part of the fear is, look, if we set a minimum standard, everyone's going to meet that minimum standard. And as we all know, technology changes, the attacks change, and people just have to you know, the bad people just have to go slightly above that standard, and they've broken the security. You so know what I thought we did um, in the California law, if I remember, at least with the security breach law, I think we said that companies that experience a, a, a security breach of electronic information uh, must notify all affected potential victims unless there was encryption, right? Correct. And, but, but I thought that what we did was we tied the standard to um, who, who develops the encryption standard. There's some uh, group, right, that's, that sets the standard. And, and we thought about that when we actually worked on that legislation, is that it would be tied to whatever standard was the standard at the time because we knew it would be hard to keep changing the legislation, Right. So that would be an alternative is to say that, at, you know, that it should be the standard as applied by whatever group is setting the standard, you know, the, the uh, you know, that that could deal with that. And that's exactly what we did, because we said as soon as we say 128 bit encryption, <laughs> it's going to be 250 bit. Right. Exactly. So that's, well, that's what we I remember that that was clearly part of the legislation when we, we worked on that is that we wanted it tied to some um, entity that was developing the best practice for encryption. And, and I think that could be done, you know? But unfortunately, that didn't make it into the legislation. Um, and I don't believe, if I remember correctly, I don't believe there's any I think that's in the, somewhere in there. I'm going to have to look that up. But I mean, the, only, the only thing that's in the data breach legislation laws, California being the first one, and a lot of other states adopted it almost verbatim, is the word unencrypted. Mm -hmm. It's whose unencrypted personal information, you know, has been um, subject to unauthorized access, but it does not give a de That's actually, there are, there are certain commentators and, and critics out there who say that is actually one shortcoming of the law in the sense that it doesn't define 
what unencrypted means, or right. it, doesn't, it think, doesn't define I, encryption. Right. I think somewhere, and I'm going to have to look it up and send it to you, because I think I remember specifically talking about that, because I sit in the Office of Privacy Protection, and when we, when the Office of Privacy Protection was asked about that, that is how the response is on the privacy um uh, let's see, privacy.ca.gov website it explains that it is what it is tied to. So I'll have to send that to you. Okay. But but be that as it may, whether it got in there or not, I, I totally blanked on that one. But I think that was the thought, is tie it to a best practices or at least a standard at the time so you don't have to keep going in and changing legislation. At, at least that would be something to think about. Mm-hmm. My concern with self-regulation is in the past when we had data brokers that tried to have the IRSG years ago, mm -hmm. and they tried to have a consortium. Um, The problem was is those companies that were good companies would, you know, uh, establish best practices and would follow them, but most of them would not. And that's that's when we saw that in that case and in many other cases, self-regulation was not working. And that's why we thought that legislation would at least be some, you know, something out there that would, you know, everybody would know, okay, there's legislation out there, we better look at it. And general counsel is going to look at that and, and advise their, um, you know, their constituents that they, you know, you better do something here. Well, I think, though, today, if we look at today's landscape, that dynamic is changing a little bit. And I turn back again to PCI. So PCI is the uh, payment card industry. Well, PCI is, is a shortened way of saying PCI data security standard. Um, PCI is the organization, payment card uh, industry. Industry, right. And they have the data security standard that's out there. The reason I say that the dynamic is changing at least a little bit is when you start to look at liability associated with all of these data breaches. In fact, we're, we're seeing some proposed legislation in some of the states where they want to shift the um, the cost of of making you know of of, of compensating breach. people when there's a security breach they want to shift the liability from where it currently is with the credit card companies to the company that was responsible for the breach right the retailer I think Minnesota passed that law and right. California has legislation also yeah and and Massachusetts right. uh, it it hasn't succeeded yet in Massachusetts but they they were one of the first ones to to um, Right. Propose it, but it's the other way that it's changing. What so what PCI does? Is well, that, that's, that's because the credit card companies are are really requiring the PCI, and they're saying if you don't do this, we're gonna we want you to be held responsible and not us because of the federal law that that basically says that the consumer is not liable. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's why I think you are seeing a change, and it is it is backed up by fines. Yeah. Um. You know, if you're not compliant with PCI, so. Well, At because in, and that, but that that the the consumer isn't hurt and doesn't stand to get hurt. It's the credit card companies that stand to get hurt, and that's why there's compliance. Correct. You know, I don't think it's the same thing if you have identity theft victims because the company itself doesn't get hurt. It's the consumer that gets hurt. So that's the difference. Is that there is reason to to be motivated to be <laughs> to be compliant because you don't want to have this huge security breach and have to pay all these people and have to you know notify and and worry about deceptive practices with the Federal Trade Commission I think that's the difference is that when they themselves have something to lose then they're going to self-regulate a Agreed. little bit better I, I do want to bring up one other component here though and, well, let me first I, introduce you again. If people are oh, driving sure. by, I want to hear. We are dealing right now, and we're, we're so lucky to have Randy Sabet, who is an attorney and a technology brilliant guru. He's a CISSP. He is with the law firm of Sunshine Nathan Rosenthal in Washington, D.C., and he is also the co-chair of the Technology Committee of the American Bar Association, and I'm always thrilled to see his notes that he uh, shares with his brilliance here. So he's talking to us again about um, self-regulation versus legislation. Go ahead. Right, and I think the the, the one other component that, that really does not um, – I don't want to say it doesn't get attention because, you know, if you look back to the um, the, the National Plan to Secure Cyberspace 
back in the 2003 timeframe, there are really three separate stakeholders here. And it, it kind of is analogous to the three-wave theory that I mentioned. So you've got the government, who obviously has a role in all this. You right. have businesses who have where it, that's where we're sort of focusing the conversation right now. But I also think we need to keep in mind the the individual responsibility um, that is associated with protecting your personal information. What I mean by that is, why is all of this information out there in the first place? It's not because. In most cases, it's not because companies went out harvesting. They went looking for people's credit card numbers. People understood that they have a limited amount of liability with respect to their credit cards. That's the system that the credit card companies set up initially. And so people are comfortable with putting their, or I should say historically have been comfortable with putting their information out there. Depending on what information, though, Randy, we're talking about putting a credit card on uh, the internet to make a purchase is is really being pushed by companies, and we're we're tapping into it because we're feeling we want to feel safe, and we've got the you know uh, the certain uh, policies by the credit card companies and the Fair Credit Billing Act that protect us. Right. I'm not talking about that kind of information. I'm talking about your social security number. You know, most people don't want to give that. You know, they don't want to give other sensitive information. I mean, if they have to give their address and they have to give their their credit card number and they have to give the three-digit code on the back of their credit card number, that's one thing. But to gather other information, you know that these companies are gathering much more information than they need, and they're sharing it and selling it and doing all sorts of things with it that are totally beyond the control of you and me as consumers. Well, I would... I would respectfully disagree in a very narrow way. What I mean by that is, and this is what I was getting to, why is all this information out there? Well, it's for convenience. I want to make a purchase over the Internet as opposed to going to the store, or I want to make a purchase because I can't get it anywhere else. For whatever reason, I'm willing to give up my personal information in order to get something. It's, you know, convenience, call it whatever you want. What I think... Now, wait a second. Again, now, let's just stop there. So that's you're right. You're 100% right. Now, when I give it for that purpose, I'm not giving it for any other purpose. I'm giving it to purchase an item, and it's my expectation that it's only going to be used for that purpose. It's not going to be shared. It's not going to be lost. It's not going to be stolen. That I am going to trust that that company is going to do what they can to protect it because they're only going to use it for that purpose, and they're going to secure it. Right. So, so that I don't when I give up my information, it is not with the um, cavalier attitude that, okay, I've I've given it up. Now I expect that other people are going to see it and other people are going to use it to steal my identity or use my credit card. So, you know, I mean, it's a totally, I don't, I, I really don't think you can put the burden on the consumer. No, no, at no. All. I'm not. I'm yeah. not putting. No, I'm not putting. Believe me, that's that's why I wanted to be real careful. I'm okay. not putting all the burden on the consumer. What I'm saying is, I think. I think. I think the system has to go through a, for lack of a better term, self-correction. So we've historically had uh, some amount of of lax practices. I think those are being corrected by the legis- some of the, you know somewhat by the legislation, including the proactive as well as reactive legislation. So what I mean by that is you have data breach notification that you know that kicks in when something bad has happened you have cybercrime laws those are all after the fact but now we're starting to see laws that are focused more on taking proactive measures so you have and California was again in the lead here with AB 1950 you know where where companies have to put in place reasonable security practices right what i'm saying is i think and this also gets there, there's an education component this is the the wonderful thing about this this whole area is there are so many different dynamics that right. each need to be adjusted slightly, um, or you know, there needs to be a t- different amounts of attention placed on different things. I think from an educational perspective, what I'm trying to say is individuals need to realize that, first of all, they have the power to say no. And what I, you know, where that comes into play, I, I would almost use your same terminology. I think people cannot, can, can, should no longer and probably should not have been as cavalier as they have been in the past with giving out their personal information and with giving out their credit card. So when you give your credit card number to, you know, Joe's Garage, and I apologize to all Joe's Garages <laughs> out there, you know, 
that may not be the place where you want to share your personal information if you don't think that company has good practices. So well, I think actually, I'd feel safer giving my credit card to Joe's Garage or, or Johnny's Garage or Lloyd's Garage rather than giving a check mm-hmm. or a debit card mm-hmm. or a money order or anything else because, again... The good news is is that we've got the you know the Truth in Lending Act, the Fair Credit Billing Act, the the promises by Amex, Visa, Mastercard. I'm not worried at all about giving my credit card anywhere. I look at my statement. I know if there's anything on there that's fraudulent, that is the one thing I feel safest doing. Right. Anything else, I really don't want to give up my information. And and you're right. We have to educate consumers. I have a book called Safeguard Your Identity, where I tell people, you know. Don't give information. If you're going to buy something at the store and use cash, what do you have to give them your uh, driver's license for? What do you have to give them your home address for? What do you have to give them anything for? Mm -hmm. So, you know, always ask what do you need and never give more than you absolutely need. But, and that's true. We want to make uh, people be savvy consumers, uh, privacy conscious. But the truth is, is if you do all of that, and I know some people who are extremely privacy conscious, They've done all of that, and they've still become victims of identity theft because there have been security breaches, not just the electronic stuff, but dirty employees. We know what there's some statistics saying 60 to 70 percent of identity theft comes from unscrupulous employees in in different um, entities. Right. So, again, I just I I think we really have to put the 90 percent of the burden on the companies that collect the information, they have to have a fiduciary duty to protect it. Agreed. I, I you know, and again, it gets back to share what I would call shared responsibility, and I, and that's where I think the adjustment does need to be made in certain areas. Um, I think where we've seen a lot of the problems is at the, you know, the corporate or the enterprise level where we've had the data breaches that we've had. Um, but I do think, you know, through a combination of industry pressure and the legislation that's out there and and some of the proposed legislation I, I think we're we're starting to go through that correction that we've talked about now will that necessarily get rid of all identity theft no for all the reasons that we've said and i think you you actually hit on probably the the most difficult problem um, and it's what i tell all of my clients look if someone wants to get your information and they are determined enough and, and we're now starting to see situations where that determination is not necessarily motivated by glory. It's no longer the script kiddies. We're now talking about organized crime. We're talking about foreign governments that, that have a, a significant amount of backing. They are going to be able to, in some way, shape, or form, put, put the resources behind it to really try hard to get that information. And we're seeing, again, we're, start, we're starting to see the attack vectors change where it's no longer sort of phishing attacks and these, these broadcast, you know, millions and millions of emails. We're starting to see very targeted attacks at the, you know, possibly all the way down to the individual level where the information is being gleaned both, you know, from, from the companies but also potentially from the individuals. Yeah, recently, and those are problems you know, yeah. that, I'm sorry, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say that that recent big case out of Florida where these Cuban uh, Cubans were getting, were, were exchanging, um, paying money to these Eastern Europeans for big databases with sensitive information, including social security numbers, and there yep. were millions, uh, millions of dollars worth of fraud. Yep. So, you know, um, these kinds of things are the kind of tragedies that these victims could not in any way prevent. Agreed. Yeah, yeah. It's, so it's it, you know, if, if if we were able to come up this, with the solution on, on this radio show, we would be able to retire. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but let me ask you, so you're in Washington, and you are right there in the middle of all of this proposed legislation with security breaches and data brokers. What, what Lloyd says we have about six minutes. Can you tell us mm-hmm. what's coming down and what your thoughts are with the, the legislation that's federally, you know, uh, being proposed now? Well, um, I think as, you know, as the, the days pass, we're, it's less and less likely that something will pass in this Congress. Um, I think there was a lot of hope in a couple of different bills that were pending. 
Um, I think, again, one of the difficult things with security is coming up with something that achieves the right balance, again, coming back to that word balance, between um, who's going to be liable and, and what protections you put in place and, and what kind of controls there are. It is, it is not an easy thing to do, particularly when, and, and this is something that is somewhat unique to the security space, particularly when uh, different types of businesses, um, you know, if you look at an industry, a particular industry vertical, their needs in the area of security are going to be different than some other company in some other industry vertical. It's why we saw, at least in this country, legislation develop in a uh, in that type of fashion, where in the in sort of the healthcare vertical, you had HIPAA. In financial services, you had GLBA. You know, the the needs are different, so it's tough to put in place, or I shouldn't say tough. It is a it is a challenge to come up with a law that would be broad-based. Um, and there's also... You well, know, our security also- breach law really was broad-based. It applied, you know, basically whether there was a security breach of any kind, even small companies versus large companies, which is versus governmental. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's actually worked. You know, that's why I kept saying if, if something isn't broken, you know, why why try and fix it at the, you know, the federal level to to incorporate at least... That that has made such a tremendous difference in in bringing a conscious level of security and uh, protection of private information, you know, to all these companies. That's that's why I was a little disappointed to see that they have been trying to, uh, you know, oh, basically preempt California law. Well, I think there there are a couple of different um, aspects to the laws that are pending. Um, some of them do incorporate you know, the data breach notification requirements, but they also pull in a lot of other requirements that are still being vetted. So there are, you know, there are some laws that that require, uh, you know, disclosure of your security, I'm sorry, not laws, there are some bills that require uh, disclosure of your security, um, basically your your security policy or your security position. There are others that talk about, you know, potentially having to do penetration testing on yourself. And those kinds of things meet with resistance because of the implications behind them. So I think, again, it's, it's a difficult uh, situation that, that Congress is facing in trying to achieve the right balance between all the different stakeholders. It's probably hard because we're coming up to an election year, too. I would think that that must be really rough. I mean, on the other hand, I'm a business person, and I do a lot of work for businesses, so I have a a great deal of empathy, as you do, for businesses, because this stuff has to cost a fortune. Well, yeah. And and you look at the the California law, just as a, I know we're running short on time, but just as a very specific example of where you you have this difficulty crafting a law that, that, has technology implications, think about a company that is heavily dependent on the kind of information we're talking about, and now you tell them, well, the only way, the only safe harbor under this law is if you encrypt data. Well, everyone knows encryption is not free from a uh, time perspective. It costs time to encrypt and decrypt information. Right. So it's it's something that on its face, wow, this is a great idea, but then you, you sort of go under the covers and you look at the technology and it's like, well, wait a minute, that's going to have a huge cost on businesses that, that have to you know, keep high throughput or have to achieve certain levels of, of service. You know. Right, so. and they haven't really segregated their sensitive information from their you know, non-sensitive information, so that makes it hard. Lloyd says we have just a few minutes. We have a lot of business people that live in Orange County. We actually have kind of like a little Silicon Valley type area. Just, would you like to just give a final thought for people who are businesses about uh, what they should be thinking about, at least for security, and then give your website? Sure. Um, I think it it gets back to the same sort of framework that a lot of the laws espouse, and it's it's something that most security practitioners know, and that is. Technology is not going to solve everything. This is about more than technology. Um, so you need you need the, the policy angle of it covered, and you need other things besides, as you pointed out earlier, besides the electronic. You need physical security. You need other things. So, what you know from a from a high level perspective, it's really 
you know, a, there's sort of a, a three-step process. First of all, you do a risk assessment. Figure out what information do I have, how do I need to protect it, you know, if I print out a lot of stuff, I have to avoid dumpster diving. You know, make sure I shred everything. Right. you um, got to hurry have, up, Lloyd's telling me. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, do a risk assessment, implement and, and enforce your, your security policy based on that risk assessment, and, and update it regularly. I think that's, you know, at a high level, that's what companies need to look at. And they can go to your website, can't they? And they can uh, click on there and see some of your articles that, it, that you've written. Isn't that correct? Yeah, and we also have a, a, a newsletter that we uh, send out when when different events happen. Um, the, the website is www.sunandshine.com. That's S-O-N-N-E-N-S-C-H-E-I-N. And then to get to my practice specifically, it's isie.sunandshine.com. Great. Well, we are going to have people come and visit you. And you are also, your, uh, your website is also on our website. So we thank you so much. And we're going to have you back again. Let's see what happens with the legislature. And, and we'll have you back to talk about that. That would be great, Mari. Okay, Randy, thank you so much. Good talking to you. This is Privacy Piracy host Mari Frank. Please visit our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. We'll see you next week. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.